A man discovers that he has a debilitating disease that will result in the gradual loss of all of his physical abilities in the next three years. He'll be mentally alert but trapped within a body that no longer works, unable to speak, to walk, to swallow, even to breathe. A, a woman discovers she has inoperable brain tumor. She worries that she'll be a burden to her husband and children as the condition worsens. And eventually, she loses all ability to care for herself, requires her family to clean her, to feed her, to carry her. A teenager has lost her battle against heart disease. She slowly slips into a coma as her heart weakens, and she's sustained only with the help of a respirator and other life support. These are real-life scenarios that happens in cities across our nations every day. And friends, you may have been fortunate enough to have avoided being confronted by them personally, but likely a day will come when you will be touched by a medical situation just as difficult as these. It may be a parent, it may be a friend, God forbid, it, it may be a spouse or a child. It could happen to you. And at such a time, we, we all need to know what we believe about death and about how we die well. And if you're a follower of Christ, one of the most important considerations for you will be to know what God's will is concerning how the suffering face death and what is and is not acceptable regarding our treatment of the dying. Bin Bishop Lindsay Davis stated it this way, as a culture, we're uncomfortable with death and suffering. Many of these end-of-life issues we confront only when we have to. That's unfortunate because our faith has much to say about living and about dying. So today in our teaching series, we're going to consider simply suffering and dying well. And specifically, how do we respond to questions around dying well? physician-assisted death, euthanasia, suicide. And you might be wondering, so why are we addressing this topic in church? Because some might be here and feel like, hey, just give us scripture and God, that's all we need. But, but really, is it that simple for us? I mean, shouldn't our faith have something to say about these very serious moral and ethical issues that concern our day and nation? And, and let's remember, here's what Scripture does tell us. Death is inevitable. 100%. No one's overcome it, except one. Death is inevitable for everyone. Life on earth is temporary. And this is a reality that many people, they don't like to contemplate, understandably. I, I doubt you came here today thinking, I just hope we talk about death. Well, here you are. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote to Christian believers in the city of Corinth around the first century A.D. about just the very temporary nature of mortal existence. And listen to what Paul wrote. I'm going to read an extended passage of this. And remember, this is a word of God. And we read there in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 4, I'll pick it up in verse 16. <clears throat> We do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 4. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Now, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who's given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Hmm. So, so let's do this. Let, let's kind of begin by defining some terms as we begin this focus on what may be the most controversial medical issue since abortion. The word euthanasia may, may know it literally means just good death. And while the word could be used to describe a host of different concepts, in the common usage of our day, it's, it's come to mean a mercy killing in some sort. By, the, by this, either meaning taking one's own life or taking another's life, either at the person's request or even at times without their consent, in order to alleviate their pain and suffering. Now understand this, euthanasia is actually a much broader term than, than just physician-assisted death. And you may know that's been much in our news of our nation in this year. In, in Canada, Bill C-14, which was passed this year, it legalized physician-assisted death, or as it's now called, medically assisted, in medical assistance in dying. And under this bill, doctor-assisted death, is, it's restrict, restricted, if you don't know, to, to mentally competent adults, 18 years or older, who have a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability. And, and the medication that brings on death, it has to be self-administered by them. The person has to be conscious. And, and this bill in Canada is actually much more restrictive than many proponents of assisted dying had sought. Now, in our study today, it touches on that reality in our own day and country. But our study isn't just listed, limited to Canadian legislation. But, but it's even more extension extensive expressions of euthanasia. And really, just to kind of lead us in this topic, I want you to hear a short interview that I did with Dr. Jeff Way. And, and Jeff has been a member of our Southview Church family for many years, along with his wife, Marianne, and children. And he's been a leading trauma surgeon in our city for over 30 years. So, so let's watch this together. And, and Jeff, truly just so appreciate you doing this no, no I, and as others are joining or watching this we know you're not in your scrubs to be dramatic but you literally just came from the operating room to be here with us uh, and jeff is a husband and father a devoted follower of christ i've been a surgeon and trauma surgeon in our city for over 30 years uh, also you have your masters in christian studies from canadian uh, Southern Baptist Seminary, so you are particularly capable, in addition to being on the Ethics Committee, 
uh, within our city, uh, medically speaking, you can speak to this from a really fuller perspective, these questions. Uh, so, so as we move into this, maybe we'll begin here, that I think it is safe to say that we evangelicals tend to oversimplify social issues. And on this matter of what used to be called physician-assisted death, now it's medical assistance in death, uh, why are the questions around this more complex than perhaps we realize? You know, this is a, a very complex issue, and you're faced with people who have just got horrible disease, who just feel that the, the, they're, they've had everything done medically, and for a lot of them it's, it's pain and their quality of life is just, is just not there. And on a regular basis, I'll see people who choose not to do things. They choose not to have surgery for cancer. They choose not to go through the chemotherapy because they don't want to have the disfigurement that will, will result from that, or they don't want to have the pain and the, the side effects of the chemotherapy agents, or they choose not to have blood transfusions or antibiotics for illness. And uh, they will have their life, they will choose quality for a shorter time versus longevity with less quality of life. And yet we look at this differently for people who are suffering and wish to not have that terrible quality of life and have no other alternatives. And you have to remember, this is not taken lightly. The, when they apply for this, not everybody is uh, sanctioned to have this. There's a process that has to take place. And we have to be sure that they have done everything medically has been done and there's no other options in terms of the, their disease management that can be done. And uh, then they choose to this route to deal with their, with their anguish. Mm -hmm. And they get to choose. That's what I think drove the Supreme Court of Canada was individual choice. And, and how we've talked about this with my own father near the end of his death as he was really on death's door in palliative care, he received medication to bring some comfort before he died. Even that is, that's kind of in that gray area, you could say. It is, and, and there's palliative care, and then within palliative care, we have sedation palliation that, that people can still be in terrible pain and, and, and suffering while they still have chosen that not, nothing further active will be done. So it's very important to keep these people uh, free from that. And, and we have the ability to do that in many cases. This is why we have to be able to deal with death well. We have to be able to help these people through, through this. And I've said this many times to people that there comes a point in time where we're no longer prolonging life, we're only prolonging the dying process. So how would you, or would you see a distinction between euthanasia, that term, and medical assistance and death? What are the distinctions so, between so, those two? So the, the difference there is, is how this is accomplished. Euthanasia means that um, there's uh, a physician or a uh, the other healthcare practitioner will administer a medication which will cause the death of the patient. Um, medical assistance in dying, the patient has to self-administer. But what happens is they're given a prescription, there will be uh, medications there, they can take it home and then take it at, at their own uh, leisure. And reality is it is the law of the land. Uh, physicians do not have to participate. I personally do not participate in this, uh, but there are those who do. And mm -hmm. um, they see it as their, uh, their, their calling to help people who are, 
who are requesting this. And why would you say, no, I'm going to not be involved in it, though? I'm just not sure. Huh. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I, I watch a lot of people die. Yeah. I watch a lot of people die. I've watched people die well. I've watched people die not well. And I understand where they're coming from. But on a personal level, to actively uh, to do that, I, I don't think I, I, I can't do that huh. personally. Bringing it home to our, our people, our congregation, knowing very likely many of us will have maybe perhaps an individual family member come to us saying, I, I'm looking at moving into this direction of medical assistance and death. Uh, or perhaps they've already walked through it, done all the check boxes, uh, and they've been approved for it. How would you counsel responding, or, or people responding to that kind of situation? I think the worst thing we can do is just say, well, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not having anything to do with this. I mean, we, we see that in so many areas of life, and people end up, uh, families and people end up estranged and fractionated for years before ever getting back to talk to one another. And, and in these cases, you're not going to have that time. It's going to be very short. Mm. And so I think that that person is coming to you to say, here's where I am. This is my decision. And help me. Hmm. And in some cases, that help will look will be being sure that they've looked at all the options, that they're, they're cared for. We could say, what, why have you gotten to this point? What's missing? And we may be able to help them through that. And they may go, oh, OK, and I don't need to go down that road. Because majority of people express this interest. Not everyone mm. follows through. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who are just looking for information, but the majority do not follow through on this. We know that from, from the statistics from other places. Mm. And a lot of people are just also alone and afraid, yeah. and they feel that they don't have anybody and to help them and, and be with them. And, and if we show that we're going to be there, that may change something. I, I don't know. But I, I know that if we just say no, it's lost. Our opportunity to be there for them and with them is lost. Mm. So we can't just say, bury our heads in the sand and, and ignore this, because this may be our last chance with these people. Mm. And it's our last chance to talk to them and care for them. And we, as family members and friends and as pastoral staff, are, are going to have to be there with them and support them through this. And um, if it's the last steps, do they want to go down that road alone? And it's, at the end of the day, they get to choose. We get to choose how we get the help. Christopher Vaniami put it this way. One of the ways by which the level of society's culture may be measured is how it treats its members both at the beginning and at the end of life. So today what I'd like to do is walk through six key questions related to our topic today. And then let's begin with a question that many of us have wrestled with, which is often associated with as well, but is, but is actually quite different 
from euthanasia. And it's this issue of life support. Our first question is simply, what about life support? How, how do we understand this? Because often in the course of medical treatment for a grave physical crisis, it's necessary to use artificial means, whether it be respirators, ventilators, heart machines, to keep patients alive. And, and sometimes when individuals are placed on life support, the days that follow reveal that the person's condition is really irreversible. And often family members agonize over the decision of, of whether to withdraw life support. And, and some have erroneously called this decision passive euthanasia. And perhaps it's with the hope of winning support what they, for what they also call active euthanasia. But, but very, very clear in this, most, however, don't consider the decision to withdraw life support from individuals who are dying and who can no longer sustain their own life apart from artificial means to be a form of euthanasia. Because the key distinction is the difference between acts of omission and of commission. Because in suicide and euthanasia, it is the act, it's the injection, the gun, the pills that takes the life of the individual. But when we withdraw life support from persons who are dying, it's, it's the disease, it's the physical condition that eventually takes their life. And these individuals couldn't have lived with, without extraordinary medical means. Individuals on extraordinary medical life support, they've already, as Jeff referred to, have begun to enter the death process. So that leads to what I think is a second question for us. So how do we determine our viewpoint in these matters of assisted death? And I bring this up because a fundamental problem with our personal views on, on questions of euthanasia and other ethical issues in general is that we often divorce ethics from theology. There's a divorce in our thinking between positions we hold and this life in Christ we walk in. Now clearly, we can't impose biblical theology and morality on others, but well, we need to know what, how we're to be guided in this. So with that background, I think it prompts us to a third question. What then does scripture say about human life? Let's begin with life. And, and we would say this. You've heard it here many times. Scripture consistently declares that the sacredness of each human life. And, and understand this as well. Before we even look at biblical guidance on this, let's be aware of this also. One doesn't have to be a follower of Christ to uphold the, the sanctity and unique value of human life. I mean, even human reason, even apart from biblical revelation, can, can recognize the dignity of the human person. And just look historically to have that affirmed. It's no surprise that the, the ancient Stoics, Plato, Aristotle, Immanuel Kant, most Western political traditions have recognized that human life has intrinsic value or dignity. And even another indication that we naturally know that human life has intrinsic value is that the laws of virtually all nations reflect a nearly universal belief that no one should kill innocent human life intentionally. Or, or even consider the Hippocratic Oath, which to this day medical doctors pledge in, in some modernized form behead, before they head into their medical profession. 
And again, it was likely written by the Greek father of medicine, Hippocrates, some three to 500 years before the birth of Christ himself. In its original form, Hippocrates, a follower of the Greek gods, not the follower of the God of Scripture by any means, he declared this, I I will not give a lethal drug to anyone if I'm asked, nor will I advise such a plan. And similarly, I will not give a woman a pessary to cause an abortion. I I just want us to be aware of this because you don't have to be a follower of Christ to, to recognize the unique value, dignity, and sanctity of human life. When Paul Frank, who's a member of our Southview Church family, and he's actually running to potentially fill Stephen Harper's vacated seat in Parliament, when Paul kind of recently led the way in getting the Conservative Party platform in Canada to include the declaration of the sanctity and dignity of human life, that wasn't just a Christian declaration. That's been the declaration of Western society and civilization for almost all of its recorded history. So then we ask, what about the beginning of human life? How are we to understand it? And we we know this, the predominant view in our culture is that human life doesn't really begin until birth. And until that time, the embryo or fetus is simply really kind of a mass of tissue. However, the biblical view is that God has formed a person from the moment of conception. And and so therefore, listen to what King David, uh, what he put it, how he put it, in, in Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And, and when Jeremiah, when Jeremiah received his call from God to be a prophet, God told Jeremiah that he knew him even before Jeremiah was born. So Jeremiah said of God in Jeremiah 1.4, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nation. An unborn baby is a person, a human being, made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. In in fact, we we read about this remarkable incident about an unborn baby in the Gospel of Luke. In in Luke chapter 1, in verse 39, we read this. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Masses of tissue do not leap for joy in the womb. And just what I want us to see in this, what's clear from these texts is the high view that our God has of human life, that he has created the sanctity of it, the sacredness of it. That from even the moment of conception, there's a person whom God knows who can even leap in the womb. So scripture is clear. Distinct from all other species in creation, each of us, friends, has been created in the image of God. Human life is sacred. And we'll need to look another time at how that informs our understanding of abortion, but it's more than we can look at together today. Okay, so if, if that's what Scripture declares about human life then, here's a fourth question. What then does Scripture say uh, about dying and euthanasia? And we're going to go into the most depth on this question. And I'll tell you, I realize this. Through all of this, 
It's easy for me to stand up here and put forward these principles when, when I, really I'm not going through the intense suffering and pain that I know some of you are or ones whom you love are. But with that awareness, let's, let's try to unpack what Scripture says. And know this, although the Bible never uses a word suicide or euthanasia, which again, it's kind of better known in our day as assisted suicide or mercy killing, Scripture does provide us with insight around God's perspective, his will regarding it. And, and I believe as you look through Scripture, I believe from Scripture we can say this, that Scripture resolutely opposes euthanasia. So on what basis would we say that? We can't be comprehensive, but let me touch on four reasons how Scripture opposes that idea beyond the reality that euthanasia is taking an innocent life. So here's the first reason why Scripture speaks against this very idea. It's because euthanasia rejects God's authority over life and death. On, on numerous occasions as you read through Scripture, you'll see that the Bible states that God alone has authority over life and death. For example, Moses writes this in the book of Deuteronomy. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, chapter 32 and verse 19, we read this. See now that I, even I, am he, and there's no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. There's none other that can deliver out of my hand. Or, or similarly, as you go to 1 Samuel, we, we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 6. That the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down Sheol and raises up. So understand this. To take one's own life, it really elevates human autonomy such that it denies God's lordship. Because assisted suicide, it promises life and death on kind of your own terms. It, it really, in that way, it's an act of rebellion against God's sovereign rule over life. And here's a second reason of, of how Scripture speaks against this idea of euthanasia. It's that euthanasia steals God's glory. I mean, certainly, if, if someone's not a believer, they can't glorify God in their suffering, nor may they even want to. But understand, God's glorification is not just something that human beings choose for themselves. Just the unfathomable, gracious God is passionate about his glory. And often through intense suffering, our God can lead someone from eternal death to faith in himself. He, he can awaken them to himself by means of the suffering they endure, even if it's a terminal disease. And in this way, friends, even a terminal disease can be, can be used by our God to accomplish the good purposes he has by bringing about eternal life to those who are perishing on this earth. And in contrast to that idea, euthanasia stands against God's way. It offers really a false savior. It promises something more than compassionate palliative care because it kind of comes with a false promise of a false gospel. Escape from pain by means of a good death. And for followers of Christ, at the same time, that, that death is an enemy to be resisted. The call to suffer for the sake of Christ, it's also a gift to us. Remember what the Apostle Paul said about this? For he wrote to the letter church in Philippi. Uh, Paul expressed this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. 
For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also do what? Suffer for his own sake. Is that a countercultural idea? But, but this is reality. We, we can bring God glory by the way we walk in our suffering. And, and last weekend, if you were here, we looked at how God can use our suffering to, to bring about his good. If you weren't here, I encourage you to look at that message on our website. But, but let me just remind us. In, in the Gospels, Jesus regularly calls his disciples to pick up their cross, die daily as they follow him, Right? And, and those sufferings are, in fact, part of the way that God prepares us to reign with him. In fact, listen what Paul said to that young pastor, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. If we have died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. Now, in contrast to the biblical way of thinking, euthanasia, it really, it steals the believer's ability to glorify God in their suffering. And I know this, while most of us living in the West will not, at least yet, suffer persecution like the early church did, or like our brethren around the world in the persecuted church do, but still, we'll suffer in this life. As we looked at last weekend, we'll face challenges, trials, tribulations. And, And offering, friends, that suffering comes in the form, it can come in the form of a terminal disease. And, and when such a diagnosis comes, Christians are, are given just a unique opportunity to glorify God right in their suffering by displaying to the world that we have a hope that is not just earthly, but is eternal, even in our suffering. And there's a third reason why Scripture opposes euthanasia, the idea of it. And we just put it this way. It's that euthanasia presents a false gospel. Okay, what does that mean? Well, well, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it says that those who die in the Lord will be raised to glory with the Lord. In, in this way, our hope is a Christ-centered hope, right? So death with dignity says that those who, who cannot stand to die in pain can die with respectability. And tragically, and this is not easy to say, that that is a great lie. Because friends, here's the reality. There is nothing dignified about death. Death came because it was an expression of God's judgment against our sin. So our proper response is not to pursue a, really a more dignified death, but to embrace the life promised by Christ's humiliation and resurrection. So Christians who commend euthanasia They they really understand, they cast aside Christ's ability to comfort because death, not the resurrection, not the resurrected Lord of life, it now becomes the Savior. It releases us from the pain. And there's a fourth reason I believe we could say that Scripture does make it clear it would be against euthanasia in this way. Euthanasia ignores the reality that your life is not your own. An awful lot of people think, but you own your life. You can do with it what you want. And what's interesting in this is that humanists and Christians agree. You can't murder other people because those people's lives, they're not yours, right? And, and that's sort of an accidental coincidence here. Because a person who's not a follower of Christ thinks, 
A, a person life belongs to him or herself. I belong to me, therefore I can take my life if I want to. And here's the problem with that. The only way you would belong to yourself is if you were not created. Because whatever you create, you own. If I make something in my basement, I own it. And if the God of creation created you, friends, he owns you. Your life is not your own. You, you just can't do what you want with your life. You are called to be like a servant to Christ, to give your life to him. So in these ways, I think there are, these are four of the reasons. There are many more. Why I think scripture stands resolutely against euthanasia and suicide. Now let's return to our last couple of questions. So a fifth question. Okay. So is suicide or euthanasia an unforgivable sin? Hear me really clear on this. No, it is not, friends. We have to understand this biblically, really, in our thinking, to be clear in it. Because Romans says that when a person turns to Jesus Christ in faith and follows him, this is what Paul wrote in Romans 8.1. In fact, let's read it together. Read it with me. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation is there for any one of us who right now are in Christ? None whatsoever. None. Which means... If you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you die, whether it's by suicide, euthanasia or not, you are lost eternally. But if you have turned in faith to Christ and you die, again, whether it's by suicide, euthanasia or not, you've been saved for eternity because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Amen? No single act of sin, including the taking of one's own life, can overcome the cleansing power of the cross of Christ. Grace is indeed greater than all of our sin, friends. Every single sin. So a sixth and final question. So as I asked Jeff, how, how do we walk with those who are considering ending their life? Because if... If helping people commit suicide is not the appropriate expression of compassion, what is a Christ-centered expression of compassion for those who are suffering? How should we respond? And I would guess in the coming years, many of us will experience this. In a phrase, I'd put it this way. Just tangible compassion. Think of Mother Teresa. She assisted many people in dying. She helped many people to die. How? By being present with them. By assuring them they wouldn't die alone. So in that, she helped them find the courage to face death and the conviction that their dignity had not been lost. And, and to find a serenity born of receiving love from people and from God through Jesus Christ. So understand, that is the legitimate meaning of death with dignity and of helping people to die. In fact, that is the gospel response to the dying members of the human family. We as the body of Christ do not simply say, euthanasia is wrong, don't do it. Understand, rather the church, the body of Christ, we need to say to those who are suffering, we are with you in this. Do not be afraid. 
Because our God did not and does not watch our suffering from a distance, does he? He leapt into our suffering. That's the meaning of Christ on the cross, and that gives meaning to all of human suffering. And that's also the meaning of compassion. We jump into and share the suffering of one another. It's interesting, as so many studies have shown, that usually individuals asking for help in dying don't actually desire death. Dr. Philip Muskin, a psychiatric professor at Columbia University notes that the question, will you help me end my life, often means, am I loved and wanted? A patient requesting help in dying, he writes, may be asking for affirmation that despite illness, others really do care for him or her and do not simply want to get him or her out of the way. The patient may also be asking for really a reason to live. So we are called, therefore, like Christ leapt into our lives, to sit with those who are dying without trying to will them to hurry up in it. We remind them as well of the hope that Christ is drawing us into eternal life. Here's the reality, friends. The power of the gospel that this word declares isn't simply that God walked among us in Jesus to show us the way that we should live. Jesus also showed us the way we need to die. Because he said, do you remember it? As he prepared for the cross, Father, not my will, but yours be done. The great hymn writer Isaac Watts moves us with these words. Touched with a sympathy within, he knows our feeble frame. He knows what sore temptations mean, for he has felt the same. He in the days of feeble flesh poured out his cries and tears, and in his measure feels afresh what every member bears. Then let our humble faith address his mercy and his power. We shall obtain delivering grace in every needful hour. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, God of compassion, we think of how your son Jesus wept with Mary and Martha at the death of their brother Lazarus. And, and we ask now for your presence with the dying and grief-stricken among us in our church body. And we would pray, Father, by your spirit, may those who are afraid and in pain see your tears. May they know your embrace. Give courage to all who are anguished. Give, give wisdom to those who, who decide the course of another's life. And, and would you teach us to show the power of your love that, that suffers with us in all things and gives us life in abundance, that, that we might do likewise with others. Grant that in life and in death we, we may sing for joy beneath the shadow of your wing. And we ask in the name of one who died and rose again and reigns with you now in your Holy Spirit forever and ever. And all God's people say, amen.